0: Are we not? fearful of what this does for the just general market more broadly? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of monopolization or we've got conglomerations forming. Could this be a, a negative for the overall sort of competitiveness of shipping in that sense or it doesn't really matter because the security outweighs that the them?
1: Oh no, I, I think we've been seeing this happen for the past 15 years where we've seen this consolidation where you initially saw alliances formed in the 1990s was smaller shipping firms trying to deal with the big behemoths like Maersk. Now what right. you're seeing is these big huge alliances trying to capitalize on about 30 to 40% of the market share. And and so I I do think you're going to see a sorting out, a hop hog leaving their alliance is going to make that alliance much weaker and it's going to be kind of consumed up and and
0: chopped up. This is The Global Gambit. What's going on, guys? It's time for another episode of The Global Gambit. My name is Piotr. I'm your host and I focus on geopolitics, current affairs and macro matters in this and macro slash geopolitics to economics is something that we're going to be talking about in this episode where we're being joined is Sal Mercagliano. Uh, he is the chair deputy of history, criminal justice and political science at Campbell uh, University. And I'm very delighted to have him on part of um, what's going on in shipping. Uh, his very, very to the point uh, title of his YouTube channel and generally a lot of work that he does do. In Maritime Matters, and has been one of the best sources I can find both on YouTube, but also X and several places uh, about the ongoing attacks by the Houthis in the Gulf of Aden, uh, in that sort of broader sort of greater horn slash corner of Yemen area and its impacts on uh, commercial flows. Uh, generally the maritime security globally, because it's having global ramifications. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I've got some questions lined up to so Sal, uh, of one of which I'm quite excited to ask him later on, which he thinks about the future of what this could mean. Could we see a general return to sort of, well, geography being a critical part of politics in a way that we've sort of just assumed these uh, these thoroughfares like Panama and uh, Suez Canal being able to give us these uh, advantages strategically, and whether or not... We're entering a new period where shipping just takes longer and is more costly again. But Sal, thank you so much for joining. Uh, very, very first question I have, it I guess, is just very briefly, could you give us a lay of the land of the situation? Maybe there are some viewers who hate news, but decided to just tune into my channel and this show for the first time for some reason, and they have no idea what's going on uh, with the maritime houthi situation.
1: Well, Pierre, you know, first, uh, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, the situation that we're seeing developing in the Red Sea has been very fluid and it's gotten worse uh, rather than better as the new year progresses. Uh, what we've seen is the United States, along with its allies uh, on January 10th, executed a military operation uh, against the Houthis. Uh, there was a big convoy battle on January 9th. Uh, a lot of missiles, uh, uh, both drones and cruise missiles and ballistic missiles were shot. The U.S. and the U.K. decided to do a series of military strikes. We're up to four now, a series of strikes up against Houthi targets. Unfortunately, what that did was not stabilize the situation. It actually appears to me the situation worse. We've seen the rise of war risk insurance to sail through the airs basically pull out of the region. The exception being uh, some ships from the Chinese overseas shipping company and then CMA, CGM, a French line, which is using a French frigate for direct escort. Uh, but after the attacks on uh, January 10th, what we've seen is an escalation of freight rates, uh, excuse me, an escalation of insurance rates. And more and more ships start pulling out. Uh, We've also seen the repositioning of an Iranian vessel that was in the Southern Red Sea. It has moved into the Gulf of Aden. And coincidentally, we've seen a series of strikes in and around the Gulf of Aden against a variety of ships, this time largely against bulk carriers, including two U.S.-owned bulk carriers that were sailing through the region. This has further destabilized the area, and more shipping companies are now announcing they are not sailing through, including some LNG companies. Uh, Flex LNG, which is running ships out of Qatar to Europe, is now heading around Africa. We're seeing uh, some bulk companies uh, pull out ONE, which is a large Japanese composite Group, uh, which had already pulled its container ships out, now are pulling out its car carriers and other ships. And what we're seeing is a further reduction in the number of ships going down. Matter of fact, uh, we're, we're almost at a 50% reduction of the amount of tonnage going through this region. Uh, this is going to have impacts on the Suez Canal in Egypt. Egypt draws about $10 billion a year in Suez Canal tolls. That's uh, being uh, diminished. We've seen India increase its military presence in and around the region because of attacks on ships with Indian crews on board. Uh, We're seeing more ships identify themselves as Chinese affiliated because that seems to be a better protection than what the U.S. Navy and the British Navy is providing them. Uh, And then, as if we don't have enough going on at the same time, uh, Iran seized a vessel coming out of the Persian Gulf. Uh, They have initiated, initiated a series of strikes against uh, targets in Iraq and now Pakistan. Uh, and now Pakistan has fired missiles into Iran. Uh, just a, a massive destabilization of this key region. And shipping is, is taking a larger and larger diversion around South Africa. But of course, you can't divert around the Persian Gulf because there's only one way in and out. And that's through the Straits of Hormuz with Iran on the northern shore.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty mad to see what's happening. I'm glad you mentioned the strikes by the British and Americans, because that is a a sizable level change. You know, it's another inflection point, I think, in the broader situation and how it's developing, as well as now, obviously, Iran's own launching of missiles in Iraq, Pakistan and Syria, albeit that's not directly, I think, related to what's happening in this area. But What is this doing for these stocks and just generally the shipping companies uh, affected, you know, are we seeing a a dive in some of their, um, you know, in their in their valuations or or, what's this doing generally for the sort of the industry as a whole as well?
1: Well, I, I mean, w- one of the companies that gets watched a lot is Zim, which is the Israeli state shipping line. And so that's right. been all over the place. Uh, Zim very early on announced that they were uh, sailing around. This is before all the major companies kick around. But, I mean, the big thing is we've just seen nearly every uh, container line reannounce their their profits, their, their expected profits for the year. And they're all up. I mean, they're up tremendously uh because one of the things we're seeing is this is massive escalation in freight rates if, if you look at freight rates they have just since the beginning of the year have been on this rocket you know launch climb uh, just looking at some rates right here you know Shanghai to genoa uh you know it, it it's gone up 126 percent uh since the beginning of the year uh but it's not just the the Asia to Europe routes we're seeing asia to America and so uh while we're not seeing the levels we saw during the supply chain we are seeing seeing a a growth of levels that we've never seen before. I mean, percentage-wise, week to week, it's just amazing. It's literally a vertical climb right now. And what that is translating into is obviously going to be more profits for the shipping companies. Uh, They're they're incurring surcharges on cargo that's already been shipped uh, because of extra fuel and port charges. They're going to be involved. There'll be delays in offloads at ports because ships are arriving off schedule. Uh, containers are not going to be moving as they're supposed to be, which means that empty containers that were supposed to be in China and East Asia for loading prior to the Chinese New Year's, is not there. So we're going to see delays of cargo being delivered. Uh, And of course, you know, we still have issues in the Panama Canal with the canal only able to take about two-thirds of the necessary cargo through it because Mm -hmm. of low water. So, you know, maritime is, is really in a state of flux right now. And this is going to have inflationary uh, impact uh, throughout the first quarter of this year.
0: Yeah, I was reading uh, uh, Clarkson, sorry, uh, I think said that the average share of shipping has fallen by an average of, what, 2%? Um, And we're also seeing equities down by, I think, like 7%. Um, LPG carrier owners yeah, it, also felt it, like it's always hard resistance. to follow the
1: stocks on shipping companies because they don 't seem to follow what you would expect them to do, and I think a lot of it has to do with a misunderstanding of the shipping market uh, I expect those to change fairly rapidly uh, but but again, you 're exactly right
0: about where the stock is acting right now. You mentioned Chinese affiliated seems to be alleviating the prospect of being attacked, which i just, I find very interesting didn 't even think of that. What is that doing for Chinese-affiliated firms, or if you've been following anything, or just anything that isn't Western or pro-Israel? Are we seeing a spike in a, in, in their prices, or it's it's as you say, it changes too quickly to keep up with?
1: Well, Costco, the Chinese overseas shipping company, which is the major shipping line out of mainland China, has been able to route some vessels through. They're not sending them all through. They're still sending a lot on the diversion route. But you see them going through, and I I think one of the things you're seeing is some of these shipping lines, Costco being one, CMA, CGM for the French, uh, another one, is they're not doing normal service. They're sending ships through. That's allowing them to, to basically charge a premium service right. to go through. So uh, you can expect to see uh, ships loaded with with expedited cargo heading through here. So obviously that's going to be a, a big inflection point for them to get some money uh, for this. So we're, we're seeing those type of rates uh, being charged right now. I haven't looked at the Chinese uh, uh, corporations on the Shanghai Exchange yet to see where they're at, but I, I envision they're doing very much the same things. Uh, Again, this is also coming at the same time when two of the biggest container firms in the world is, Maersk and Hog just announced a new alliance uh, together. They're creating a new shipping alliance. Maersk used to be in with uh, Mediterranean Shipping. They have exited that shipping agreement, or they're exiting this year out. Uh, they'll be out officially by 2025. And now Maersk and Hog are going to be in an alliance together. And that's a very challenge. it's a very interesting one because it's going to be one that rivals Mediterranean Shipping in its overall size and it actually puts a rival alliance as the biggest alliance out there this is the one with costco cma cgm and and uh evergreen and so a uh, very proud that it's the alliance for well, the ocean alliance
0: i mean it's the ocean alliance. are we not fearful of what this does for the just general market more broadly i mean i'm, I'm sort of monopolization or we've got conglomerations forming could this be a, a negative for the overall sort of competitiveness of shipping in that sense, or it doesn't really matter because the security outweighs that at the
1: moment. Oh no, I, I think we've been seeing this happen for the past fifteen years, where we've seen this consolidation, where you initially saw alliances formed in the nineteen nineties was smaller shipping firms trying to deal with the big behemoths like Maersk. Now, what you're right. seeing is these big, huge alliances trying to capitalize on about thirty to forty percent of the market share. And, and so I, I do think you're going to see a sorting out, a hop-hog leaving their alliance is going to make that alliance much weaker, and it's going to be kind of consumed up and, and chopped up. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of container shipping over the past 25 years, you know, you go from, you know, the top 20 companies controlling 50% of the containers being moved on the ocean to today, where the top 10 companies control 85%. And, right. you know, they're in three big alliances. Uh, so you definitely see consolidation. You definitely see this this lack of competition. Uh, this is at a time, too, when the European Union just announced they're removing antitrust uh, protection against these companies. So uh, there may be some antitrust cases coming soon. This is all in the backdrop, again, of what we're seeing right now with the Red Sea and the dependency that we're, we're going to be paying more and more to ship goods between Europe and Asia.
0: And... Okay, so we focused a little bit more on the micro and the specific um, companies. Well, skimmed over the surface, I guess you could say, like skimming the skim in the stones, trying to find all the puns today with the, uh, <laughs> the maritime theme. But um, what about the macro implications? This is, you know, for viewers, we'd like to focus on the macro as well. I, I saw a, a pretty startling image uh, on the BBC. Of the route that ships from Southeast Asia, for example, are having to take around the Horn of Africa, but they're basically going—they're cutting straight down the middle um, of the Indian Ocean to obviously minimise distance. What is this doing for the costs? The additional costs that companies are seeing—how much extra fuel is it adding into bill cost of fuel—and um, also just what's it doing for things like you know um, impact on the sort of. What's the word I'm looking for i'll edit it this out um, what's it doing for the durability of the ships themselves and just running costs in that
1: so we're, we're in a really interesting position here where you're you know we have the tonnage and the capacity to absorb these extra voyages. But you're talking about a diversion of about 3500 nautical miles. That's anywhere from 7 to 10 extra days sailing. Wow. Mm-hmm. And but we're under new provisions where ships have to measure their carbon emissions and they have to report on that at the end of the year. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen happening with shipping is ships have slowed down uh, because it's more efficient that way. You do, you do better in your report card. Plus, the EU has just implemented on January 1st a carbon tax on how much carbon is being emit- emitted by ships. So you had ships slowing down and sailing a shorter distance from Europe to Asia. Now, all of a sudden, you are got to sail faster because you've got to make your schedule and you have to sail longer distances. Which means that you're seeing ships consume more fuel. Fuel is extremely expensive, especially if you have to stop in South Africa in fuel, because you're talking about an extra hundred dollars per uh, a ton of fuel. You're you're burning. You know, a ship is going to burn anywhere from twenty five to seventy five tons a day of of, of fuel oil. Uh, you're talking about a, a cost of six hundred fifty dollars per ton. Uh, you know. Uh, of oil, so it gets really pricey. If you look at the delta, uh, the difference between this, you know, going through the Suez costs you five hundred thousand dollars, but going around the southern end of Africa costs you a million dollars. So your, your your delta there is about a half a million on top of what you were spending. However, you also have to pay for the additional charter hire for the ship, for the crew, for these extra distances. But most importantly, you're losing a voyage each year because it's taking you longer to sail each year. So, uh, you know, this, this is costing companies millions of dollars. And it's one of the reasons why you're seeing the freight rates increase the way they are. What they're doing to offset that is they're loading the ships heavier than they did, but that burns more fuel, uh, sailing them faster. That burns more fuel. And you're bringing more ships online and you know fortunately the container sector has extra ships because back in the in the supply chain crisis of 2020 to 2022 when they made these record profits you know a company like Maersk made as much profits in a single year in 2021 as they did in the entire decade before that combined and what shipping companies do, and what all shipping companies do, is they buy new ships when they have cash in hand. It's not like a house or a car where you put it on a loan. They pay, you know, they go in and slap the money down. It's like, give me a container ship. And two, three years later, they get the container ship. And so all that new tonnage is coming online. And the plan was to phase out the old tonnage. We're going to get rid of these old ships. We'll recycle them or we'll, we'll sell them off. But now they're using them. And under the new environmental uh, provisions, every year you get a scorecard based on your, your fuel efficiency. And if you run three bad years in a row, you have to scrap your ship. Well, the plan is that a lot of these ships are going to be scrapped at the end of three years because they're going to be completely inefficient in their operations. But companies don't care because they don't they don't see this being a three-year operation. They're going to run the ships. Uh, and, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is massive amounts of carbon being dumped into the atmosphere right at a time where we're trying to be very environmentally friendly.
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I also have actually about this is the one of the examples I think of is 2011 and the Somalian piracy uh, problem that we had. There was a coalition that developed at that time. And you mentioned to me prior to us going live about the EU's efforts to develop a coalition and generally sort of the global responses to the ongoing disruptions by the Houthis. Um, how does this compare to 2011? Um, for context, obviously everyone the Houthis are much more kitted out. They're a proxy of the uh, Islamic Republic. I've got plenty of videos on the channel which I encourage you to to check out if you want deeper dives on that. One of them will be on your screen now. But what what how would you say this compares? Both in the threat that is that well they represent, but secondly uh, the response and and also just the impact.
1: So you know the Somali pirates, 2000s, 2010. That was fairly isolated. It was very small scale. What you saw, mm-hmm. you saw initially, and what it was was seize a ship, drag it into Somali waters, and hold it for hostage, and wait for the bag of money to come flying down from the sky, and then you let the ship go. <laughs> and what eventually happened was uh, navies began to patrol. And what that did is it forced – well, actually, what first happened is ships started sailing out further from the coast uh, or further away from Somalia, and then the Somalis countered with motherships and operating further from the coast. That led to Navy intervention where you saw more naval vessels involved in patrolling. Uh, It it negated a lot of the attacks that were going on, but it was very reactive. It it was Mm. a reactive response. Uh, Plus, you're dealing with small boats and, and, you know, lightly armed pirates with machine guns and rockets and that type of stuff. Uh, And what really ended Somali piracy in the 2010s really wasn't the naval patrols. It was the African Union going into Somalia and trying to restore order and eliminating the problem ashore than anything else. Now what you see is the U.S. Navy came in and tried to establish Operation Prosperity Guardian. But the problem is getting nations aligned with Prosperity Guardian, especially after the assault, because the two major nations involved in Prosperity Guardian, the U.S. and the British, were the ones involved in the attack. Which the Admiral of the area, Admiral Cooper, said, "Okay, these are two separate events, but not a lot of people are seeing that difference. And so... What we're seeing is the European Union trying to set up a parallel effort here, very much like they did with Operation Atalanta Mm -hmm. off the coast of Somalia, and they're trying to get escorts down the area. The problem is this is stretching out. It's becoming a much bigger operation. Initially, it was in the Southern Red Sea, but now it's the Southern Red Sea, it's the Bab el-Mandab, and it's the Gulf of Aden. And that's a much longer distance because the, uh, the Houthi have demonstrated that they can shoot missiles not just from their territory but over other territory and, and hit targets. And that's going to require not just more ships but ships that are capable of countering ballistic missiles. And ballistic missiles are a whole different problem because there are very few ships that have that capability to do it. And, and this is creating a much more difficult problem to deal with. And what we're seeing is because of the escalation in the in the war risk insurance, shipping companies are just deciding it's it's too too chancy, it's too expensive, and therefore I'm going to divert and head down. And 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 the fear here is that basically the only ships left that are going to be going through this region are going to be local ships, ships that are you know in and around the Middle East, uh, and then uh, ships carrying Russian oil and Chinese vessels, uh, and those nations that want to escort their own ships like the french the italians and the japanese and you may actually have a scenario where the u.s and the british are providing a co- cover for russian and iranian and chinese vessels sailing through the area that's where we're heading for right now
0: so the western security services providing services for the autocratic axis as uh, people like to call it Wow, we really are living in a in, 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 in unprecedented times. I think they like to use that phrase a lot. Um, what very simply, what cost? If this continues for say another three months, if we you know generally summarise it as being that long, or two and a half months, maybe what, how how much is this going to cost the global economy? How much is this going to cost national? I don't know countries um, GDP targets, right? Because I think actually let's take a step back from that. So, 2 pronged question. Firstly, which countries are most affected? Right, are there any particular nationalities that you tend to use uh, the Suez Canal, the Gulf of Aden, or it is literally body everyone? Or, uh, and second, what are the just global costs of this? Um, and, and and how is this impacting specific countries, I don't know, economic performances or it's too early to tell?
1: The CEO of Maersk came out and said, this is going to last for months. So, you know, I tend to look at that and say, okay, we're definitely in this for a period of time because understand, even if, if tomorrow the Houthis say, you know what, we give up, we're done. we're We're going back to being, you know, not attacking ships, it's going to take several weeks to reset the whole system because now mm-hmm. we've got ships diverting, uh, we've got new schedules in. So it's going to take, you know, what we were seeing right now is a, a disturbance that even on the, on the best scenario is lasting a couple of months. Uh, if it continues on longer, it'll, it'll, has larger impacts. So Lars Jensen, the CEO of Vespucci Maritime, came out and talked about this, and he sat there and said, you know, eventually the shipping industry will adjust. They, we they, we will adjust. They, they, you know, the rates will adjust. Everything will get back into a kind of standard form. And, and I kind of disagree with him just a little bit because I I do think it's going to have ramifications down the road. We've seen the announcement in Germany of Tesla's company shutting down the plant, waiting for material to come in. Uh, I think this this Disproportionately impacts Europe right now more than anybody else. Uh, It's going to hit America by February. Uh, We'll see the increase uh, of the costs. Uh, It's definitely going to impact Asia. Again, I think you're going to see shipments that were scheduled to get out before the Chinese New Year not be able to get out. And then you have the shutdown for a week over Chinese New Year. So you're talking about being on the backside of that. So Definitely going to see those disruptions. You know, if you start talking about, uh, you know, the doubling and tripling of, of previous freight rates, uh, then you're going to see, you know, an impact on GDP of countries of a percent or two, and so it's going to be significant. You're going to feel it uh, without a doubt. I think you're going to see the increase uh, costs associated with shipping. We're going to see some issues in the ports in sorting out the cargo. Uh, we're going to see some issues in the follow-on transportation going on. And again, you've got to do this in hand with what's happening in the Panama Canal right now as we're heading into the dry season. And that canal is at its lowest water level ever. And we've got six months of dry season coming up where we can potentially see even more problems if it doesn't get a substantial rain. And it goes back to an issue you talked about earlier. Are we seeing regionalization start taking place here where, you know, You know, oil is is shipped on a global market. There's a global price for oil, but now there's a finite number of tankers out there. And if you get to move oil from the Persian Gulf to Europe, well, we used to do that with big, very large, and ultra-large crude carriers. Well, those are basically gone now. There's very few of them left on the world's oceans because it became more economical to ship them in ships that can go through the Suez Canal because it's a quicker route, it's faster, it's more efficient. Well, you may not have that route anymore. And so you're definitely going to see the impact. The inflationary aspect is going to be here. This is right at a time, at least in the United States, where we were seeing inflation coming down, where we were seeing the economy come up. And, and you know, in the United States, we got a little thing called a presidential election coming up in, in November. So, the, you know, the president's going to want the economy to be good. So what what happens here? Do they reduce in, in, in interest rates to meet that? At the same time, like we don't have enough issues going on. Our East Coast labor unions on the ports are having a renegotiation that happens to coincide with the presidential election. Uh, So we may see disruptions in East Coast ports of the United States. So yeah, I I think you feel it in Europe first. You're already seeing it happen on the inflationary side. You're definitely going to see it in America and Asia right afterwards. And then we're going to be at a higher freight rate levels. And then this gets fixed, and then everything's got to reshuffle again. And I'm not sure, you know, if we don't come out of this halfway through this year at at the best, uh, you know, in, in the best scenario.
0: So, a you know, for, for context, for listeners and watchers, the, 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 the going around the Horn of Africa requires an additional 10 days. It's about 11.8 thousand nautical miles versus through the Red Sea, which is about eight and a half thousand. And as you said, some of the biggest shipping companies have basically said, you know, we're going to do this in, for a sizable amount of time. And, and this diversion is uh, costing uh, around $200 billion worth of trade. Is that a figure you've seen or or, 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 how much is this costing? And if you could put a pin on a number, how much is this costing global supply chains and and, and the economy? Well, I
1: mean, you're talking about 200 billion in in trade that's moving around, that's being affected by this on a daily basis. So, I mean, that's exactly how much value we're seeing moving on, on the ocean at that time. And so you're adding, you know, several percentage points to that cost as you go with your freight rate. And, you know, that's over time. So, you know, if you add a percentage to that over every day, you're seeing that, you know, accumulate quite a bit over time. Uh, and, and I don't know if I can give you an exact figure because we're still in flux here, really trying to figure it out because there's some shipping that is getting through, but not a lot. And we haven't yet seen the total displacement of shipping going around. So we're in a lot of flux right now. It, it, it's But when there's uncertainty in flux, costs are associated with it. We're already seeing some quotes for containers of up to $10,000 to move. We, we hadn't seen those since the supply chain crisis. But, but this is a different issue. The supply chain crisis was overloading ports with too right. much cargo. What we're seeing right now is the displacement of cargo. Uh, we're going to see some ports get overloaded periodically because ships are arriving off schedule, uh, but that'll settle out. And and so it, 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 it's the uncertainty that's really the worst part about this PTO because you just don't know until the ships arrive and we really start getting the cost elements in. I know for the container companies, they're already you know forecasting kickups in their profits for the first quarter, and which is great because they were coming into twenty twenty four looking at a pretty bleak year.
0: Yeah, to add to the economic headwinds being faced by China, that small thing—I forgot what you said—it was the um, oh, the U.S. election, that one, um, and a couple of other sort of events that maybe have a global impact. I'm not sure. Uh, being facetious for you. Um, is 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 yeah this is the last thing that we need is a transnational issue that well we don't have this sort of global unity to really deal with we mentioned also in the first half of our conversation viewers, which i encourage you to view uh go and watch as well about the uh the ship that ran aground for you know what was it a week and it cost or six days and it cost about 10 billion a day in in overall um well to the global economy um so it's just interesting to hear from you sal how you think that this compares albeit of course they're very different things um what do you think the global response to this is in from a policy standpoint? If you, if you could hazard any guesses, you know, given it's hard to tell when this is going to end, but do you think that governments and private sector firms are going to collaborate more to try to find a, you know, a solution to ensure, aside from well, dealing with the hooties, um, what do you think could happen from that policy standpoint?
1: Well, I I think what we're seeing here is is really the inability of some countries to understand how to handle this. You know, the U.S. handled this as the way U.S. likes to handle it, the military. You know, if you have a military Mm -hmm. issue, you have the Houthis shooting missiles, we're going to shoot them. Missiles, and unfortunately, I think that's the wrong approach to this. I really do. I, I, I think number one, it was too late by the point they decided to take action. Uh, you'd seen the escalation from the seizure of the Galaxy Leader in on in mid-November to attacks that U.S. ships were directly involved in the Carney on December third, for example. Uh, you don't get a strike by the United States until early January. I mean, so it's almost two months in by the time you see something, and I think that was too too little too late in some ways because the houthi were already animated they had already had the impact they wanted and in truth it was the commercial companies that pushed the u.s into action it was maersk and hop hog followed by everybody else saying we're going to pull out and go the other way uh you know we joked about this in the other episode, I think, and we talked about this <laughs> offline. That the way you fix this is very easy. You get Middle East peace. You know, once Middle East is a peace, it's, it's it's this is all all fixed. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's happened anytime soon. Not with the not with Netanyahu and, and the Israeli government in place right now, and the issue that, that resulted from the attacks by Hamas back in October. And, you know, you got to start looking at leverage. How do you leverage the Houthi? And the the Houthi are not going to be bribed. You know, there was a story about the shipping companies maybe going to Mm -hmm. the Houthi and offering them money. They're Mm -hmm. ideological. I I don't know if you can exactly bribe them to to get them to stop. you got to use leverage. And the leverage – against a Houthi is Iran and probably China in some way, is how do you start using that? And and unfortunately, what we're seeing is the U.S. is not in a position to negotiate with Iran. They don't have the relationship. They can't do it. They don't want to, I don't think, because it would show a sign of weakness. We just saw the Sunak government in in the U.K. talk about, we need to change this diet. We got to get a dialogue going. We got to fix this. And maybe they're in a better position to push this. But again, what we've seen coming out of Iran right now is attacks in Iraq, attacks against Pakistan. Uh, we saw an attack against a ship with a largely Indian crew that has brought the mm-hmm. Indian Navy out in a force we've never seen before out there. Uh, so you've got a lot of regional players all moving pieces at the same time. You know, Add to this – If you're Egypt, Egypt is looking at economic disaster because of the loss of tolls. They make $10 billion a year in tolls. They are forecast right now, if this continues to lose uh, about – uh, three to five billion dollars of it. You know, Egypt's entire budget is 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 almost a hundred billion dollars. So this is a sizable percentage of money they're gonna lose. They've got a war in Libya on, on their western border. They got Gaza and Israel on their eastern border. You've got Sudan south of them. Uh you've got an issue now with Ethiopia and Somalia that's about to, you know, blow up here over a port in Somaliland. We've got multiple regional issues all developing at the same time. And in the midst of this, you're trying to sail 12% of the world trade through the Bob el mandab And at the same time, you've got oil coming out of the Persian Gulf that's got to get to Europe because uh, of energy needs, because Russia and Europe have severed their supply lines between each other. So I, I, I don't, I, I can't even think of a time when we've seen this level of disruption happening in shipping. Uh, you know, short of, you know, the closure of the Suez Canal in 67 to 75 and the world wars. You know, even the tanker war of the 1980s doesn't come close to this in terms of its impact and its scale right now.
0: No, you you sort of think maybe of OPEC crisis of 71, right? Or just events, again, we can talk about inflection points um, that have systemic impacts right they really do change the system i'm not saying suddenly we're not going to be using shipping or something like changing the system but it is it is definitely having profound impacts which also compounded by everything else the the war in ukraine which media is not covering very much at the moment the war in israel and gaza itself and then obviously the situation now with iran and pakistan we've got a civil war in myanmar uh that has disrupted shipping i've been told a couple of times we just had an election in taiwan which i encourage people to check out we've covered in the channel as well you know so many different things which are in different parts of the world. But conjoining and obviously shipping is one of the lifelines that connects everything in that way, economically at least. Um, On top of it, uh, to the British point, I do find quite interesting that the British government, at least this current government, is trying to balance being in with the US in terms of proactive military intervention or actions, but also abstaining in the UN, for example, not just vetoing like the US in previous rounds or uh making statements that sort of are still supporting israel's right to defend itself but also pushing more for eventual sort of engagement diplomatically unlike the french or some others that have been much clearer in uh in in saying that enough is enough now so the uk straddling this sort of balancing act which is quite interesting but on this point um so just moving a little bit away from the economics and to sort of just the conflict itself the argument on people who are more pro-Palestine is that the Houthis are doing this because of Israel's continued operations in Gaza. And if they stop or at least pause and ceasefire, then the Houthis will desist, cease and desist their own actions. What's your take on that? Do you disagree uh, and that something needs to be done about the Houthis anyway? Or there some truth to it and we should be thinking about dialogue?
1: Well, I mean, we've seen the Houthis in the past attack shipping. I mean, this is not new. You go back 2003; they attacked a, a tanker, the Lindbergh, coming through. Uh, those weren't the Houthis, but it was an a early progenitor of of, of that conflict. Uh, we've seen them at times use this power, and 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 this is a lot of leverage they have. I, I mean, again, this is this is you know everybody's talking about Houthis right now, and and they've got they've got world attention in a way they really haven't had before. And you know the, their issue is to is to be the recognized government of Yemen, or at least to become a government separate and and and, and to to run it. Right. So you know the really the only option you have that you can offer to the Houthis is recognition. You know is 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 recognized, and that will drive Saudi Arabia crazy if that happens because of their you know fight they've had with them for over a decade. So I, I'm not exactly sure you know, anyone is ready to do that, but I think the other thing that they've demonstrated is you know. You know, in many ways, the Houthis' attacks on shipping were what the Ukrainians modeled their attacks on, on the Black Sea on. You know, they used these remote control uh, boats. They used a lot of uh, of automation and, and ways of doing it. We, we saw, for example, in 2017, uh, the Houthis used a uh, surface craft, an unmanned surface craft, to hit a Saudi Arabian frigate uh, mm-hmm. to, to very great effect. Uh, and in many ways, the Ukrainians took that and amped it up on steroids. And now here's the Houthi. Getting world recognition, uh, able to interdict 12% of the global trade going through this region, uh, and they're they're having a disproportionate influence beyond, you know, if you look at the weapons they're using, these are non-sophisticated weapons. They're they're cobbling together drones, uh, their missiles aren't, uh, yet they, they hold the distinction of being the first nation ever to use a ballistic missile to hit a ship which everybody said was really not possible because it's going to be hard to hit a moving ship. And they've been able to do it. And they, uh, you know, they've they really changed the, the idea here of how navies fight. And in many ways, while the U.S. Navy is, is, is busy congratulating itself, slapping itself on the back for being able to down all these ships, they haven't stopped the attacks, uh, even though there are these, these infrequent attacks now, maybe one missile or one drone attack a day, they're getting through and they're hitting ships. And, and, you know, for what the U.S. fails to understand is this. You have to convince not the Houthi, but the insurance companies. <laughs> and as long as the insurance companies are worried about ships coming through, they're going to make it cost prohibitive for the ships to go through. And, and so that's going to be the driving factor. And in many ways, the U.S. doesn't understand that because they don't understand commercial shipping. And, and that's one of the big fundamental problems. Uh, a nation like China understands it entirely. They understand right. it. They're, they are telling the world right now. It's like, listen, you know, Chinese gets you protection. Put a Chinese crew on your ship. You can sail right through. Get, you know, do business only in China. Put a Chinese flag, a Hong Kong flag on it. You're good to go. The Russians are screaming for anyone who wants to listen. Hey. That northern sea route around the north shore of, of Russia is wide open. We can start moving your cargo that way. The problem the Russians have is every time this happens, where they have an opportunity to sell that route, it's the middle of winter. So every time, in 2021, it was that time. In 2023, 2024, it's winter time. If, if the Russia could ever get something to happen in the summertime, they'd be in a better position. But right now, it's really tough to use that that Arctic route.
0: Yeah, and I I think considering the globe that we're in, we've had many a conversation on the channel about, you know, New World Order or BRICS and these sorts of themes, just sort of diversification away from U.S. dominant economics, right? And in these sorts of instances, countries which are non-aligned, those who are not committed to just Western-based values or whatever, may well be willing to take up the Russians or the Chinese on these offices. I mean, the Russians not are not historically known for their maritime capabilities. That's why they never really had any colonies in Africa, right? They've predominantly been a, a land force. Um, but the geopolitics of the Arctic are a fascinating area. And I think we should definitely have a, a chat with you on that in a future episode at some point. But what what's your general take then on, as we begin to wrap up for, for our conversation, I think one of the last questions I do have is, What do you think should be done about this from a military standpoint, not just sort of the policy? But do we just should the Americans, should the British, whoever it is, just try and deal with the Houthis or should they pressure the Israelis to to change course? Or again, it doesn't really matter because ultimately there will be a lag time effect until the insurance companies feel it's. Et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I, I think just real quick on, on what you mentioned before, I think BRICS is a really interesting scenario right now because if you look at where shipping is going, it's hitting Brazil, Russia, uh, uh, India, uh, China, and South Africa. They, they, they are benefiting from this greatly. On the military side, you, you know, I, I agree. I, I, I think, you know, what the Houthi are arguing is we're targeting ships and we haven't hit any. You know, we haven't no no mariners have been killed yet or, or wounded, and so what they're inflicting is an economic damage on the world, and it's really hard for the Houthi to make the, you know you make that moral argument. Listen, we're damaging you economically. We're not bombing you. We're not yeah. we're, we're we're not killing civilians, and and so I think morally that's a big problem because it's, it's it's hard not to sit there and say, well, the Houthi are doing something that's having an economic impact. They're they're not terrorizing. They're not you know killing population you know unwantedly. Now again, that tomorrow that can all change when they hit a ship and accruement and kills that that changes but you know the houthi are exerting that influence and you know I, I think the fact that they and along with a lot of population don't see the rest of the world really condemning what israel's doing uh you know i, I get detached i don't talk about these you know the moral conflicts at all because that's it's a whole issue into itself but you know when you sit there and you back ukraine because russia's conducting these illegal bombings and then you're you're backing the israelis and the israelis are doing these very you know you Type bombings in gaza it does show a, a, a moral problem i think you're into i the military solution is a really tough one because again i think the u.s na- the u.s misjudged how to do this military operation right. you know they did what they always do they got they, they they got a huge military force they threw tomahawk missiles they threw bombs and you know i guess they expected the houthi to surrender i'm not sure what what, what was what was the next state of that operation you know were you going to eliminate Every Houthi missile launcher? Well, the Saudis have been doing that for 10 years, and they haven't been able to do that. So I, I don't exactly know what it is. I think they failed in a way to really put together the international backing that they needed. You know, the, the, the alliances they announced – We're right away with problems, 10 nations, but they were almost all Western nations. Then you had this thing about secret nations that are in there, which I don't know who those are and and what they are. Uh, And now you have the European Union developing a, a, a parallel operation to do this. But if you're going to stop ballistic missiles from coming out of the Houthis, there are very few ships in the world that can do that. The U.S. Navy has most of them. And so you're going to need them as a part of this. Uh, if not, the fear I have in the flip side of this equation is that we take that ocean that has been really a, you know, a, a blue highway for everyone, where everyone has benefited from trade. We've seen the world you know, uh, economy go up. We've seen the amount of goods on the ocean just do nothing but rise. Uh, it's brought economies up. Uh, yeah. and it has been a, a boon for everyone, but now does it become factionalized, regionalized, where now that operation to create a unified naval task force is breaking down and the French the Italians the Japanese are escorting their own vessels uh, and and are we seeing regionalism take place you know or is it going to be cheaper to buy oil in a certain region than it is globally which is what what's happening right now and so that's my fear my fear is is we start seeing that nationalization the regionalization of the world's oceans. And if you're the Houthi, you just gave a, a, a playbook to any regional player. If you're astride a main shipping channel, well, you can be a big player. All you need is some missiles and you you're 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 out there and you can impact the world.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good point about the regionalization. It's one of the core arguments of globalization theory really that you're either hyperglobalist, everything's interconnected completely you're regionalist or skeptic you know you believe in the distinction between be it for cultural economic or political reasons uh and then you're transformative transformationalist it's you know countries transforming ultimately it doesn't really change too much shipping is i think an illustration of globalism or globalization in actual true you know because it's as you said it's a lifeline it's a bloodline of of the international economy and i think it's it's we are i think it's difficult to really i think emphasize how significant these attacks are. And, and you giving us this breakdown, I think, is really helpful. I had no idea just the, the sheer scale of it from an economic standpoint, um, but also symbolically speaking. And um, for me, it's it's more of a deal not playing down what's happening on the border of Lebanon and the threat of Hezbollah or the concerns about Iraq now and, and Pakistan. But it's the Houthis' actions which I think are having the most unpredictable impacts and which will last much longer than the others if you know there were to be a calm down because it's it is indirectly affecting everybody even if they have no uh, desire to be you know engaged in what's happening in the middle east at all but uh, i guess my last question for you really sal again thank you so much for this fantastic uh, conversation everyone if you haven't already please consider subscribing and liking the video um is what do you think this means for the short to medium term we've got this 20 coalition group you said the eu starting one Um, But there are, you know, uh, countries that may well not be 100% behind it. Saudis, I'm thinking of, and UAE, given their involvement in Yemen's civil war in the past 10 years. What would you say your main takeaways and things to look out for?
1: I, I think we start looking at do more shipping companies and different types of ships begin this process of avoiding the area. We're already seeing that with liquef- liquefied natural gas carriers coming in, uh, product tankers uh, carrying diesel and gasoline are starting to avoid the area, uh, and and you know what ships are still going through the area. We're we're still seeing ships of GFS, for example, which is a uh, UAE uh, shipping company are able to use it so they have an uh, you know ability to get through there with their container ships. Do uh, national states begin to escort their own vessels? Do we become very much like you know going through a contested war zone where the Italians, the French, the, the, the you know, the Germans, the Dutch and, and the Japanese are doing their own thing? Protecting their own ships, which I think is a breakdown. I, I think you know one of the things that the U.S. was doing that was really unparalleled, unheard of at this time, was offering protection for all ships. You know, if you go back to the tanker war of the 1980s, U.S. didn't do that. It, it, it only protected its own ships. The U.S. you know changed policy here and came out and said we're going to put up the U.S. Navy to protect global shipping. Uh, we're mm. going to do this. You know, when, when when they talk about freedom of the seas, it's usually freedom of the seas for American ships. It's usually what they talk about. You know, we do escort allied ships, but that's usually in wars of some kind. But here, they, you know, they were they were putting themselves on the line for these ships. And so uh, that's that's something that I don't think – and again, I don't think the Navy does a great job talking about that. They really don't. And, and you know, again, uh, we just had in the United States what's called the Surface Naval Association, uh, which are these – you know, these are the ship drivers that drive these type of ships, destroyers and such. And they were very proud of what they're accomplishing. It's a great accomplishment. They're doing great. But again, uh, it's great to win the battle. But if you're losing the war, then that's the issue. And in many ways, the Houthi are winning the war because they're achieving what they want to do. They're creating the global disruption, which is having an effect on the economy. And for, for them, they're creating a disproportionate influence on this. Basically, if you're supporting Israel in operations in and around Gaza, it's going to get more expensive for you. And that's what the Houthi are doing. And they don't care about the economic dislocation. They don't care about the chance of danger for it. And so that becomes very difficult for a military to do because even if the military sets up a, a almost 100% shield, you've got to sell that to the insurance companies. And whether or not we're talking to the insurance companies, I couldn't tell you because that's the element there. The U.S. has not been a very good advocate for soft power. It tends to be hard power. It tends to be military. It tends to be overt. It tends to be very much in your face doing that. China and other countries have been much better at that, and, and you know it's one of the reasons I think you you hear Sunak in, in the UK talk about this a little bit differently. Is that he? I think he has a little better understanding of shipping, being from Great Britain and understanding that element a little bit more. Uh, but the other fear I have is is that we start seeing that breakdown, that regionalization. You know, we've seen mm. that already happening with the creation of the Dark Fleet. Dark Fleet used to handle Iranian, Venezuelan oil. Now it's handling Russian oil. And about a 10th of the world tanker fleet is operating outside the norm here. The biggest registry that's growing right now in world ships is Gabon. It's not because Gabon is a great country for seafarers. It's because there's no rules, there's no provisions, and you can flag anything into Gabon. Give Gabon money and you're good to go. And these ships are operating outside the norm. They're not going into countries. They're not getting regulated. Uh, we we saw an explosion of one of these ships off the coast of Malaysia killed some of the crew uh this is this is a you know you're creating a a subset in global shipping that may operate outside the barriers and norms of other shipping and in a way the houthi are demonstrating their ability to do that the irony of the united states navy is it was founded to Deal with piracy it was literally the creation of the U.S. Navy was to deal with it, and in many ways the U.S. went to go deal with piracy the same way they did in 1794 against the Algerians or the you know, Tripolitans right. in 1801. Is you know use overwhelming military force when in the end what ended it with the pirates was paying them off was 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 hmm. tribute and and negotiations, and I, I think we forget to read that last chapter in all the books about this.
0: Yeah, the uh, the U.S. is I think uh, an example of saying one thing in the form of we must do more with soft power and encouraging an exchange of relations, cultural aspects, diplomacy and such, but they're not really um, acting in such a way. They they do utilize their the military. Sunak is a banker, so I'm not surprised that he thinks about the financial implications of this. It, it comes naturally to him, I think, far more than uh, foreign policy does. And um, I think the age of disruption is is largely what one of my professors at Sice in DC called it once so yeah I, I think um, and as a, as, a, as a colleague I, I know said that the, the, therefore just there are serious downsides to this there's not really any positivity to be honest but um, on that very depressing note I suppose um, Sal it's been a pleasure thank you very much for coming on uh, and giving us this breakdown uh, I'd love to have you back maybe as I say for a one-off about the Arctic That I think that'd be fascinating but maybe we can also have an update uh, from you about the situation you know as things develop into the into the new year and um everyone do encourage you to check out sal's channel he does some fantastic work uh, and if you really like nerding out on shipping uh, as he does i mean that is the best of uh then um, then do go and check it out but uh, thank you very much no, if you're
1: nerding out you're fine it, it's complete it, it's un- irrational my nerding out on shipping you're good
0: i look forward to seeing you uh, next time uh, and as always take care